Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. You are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. And this week we are speaking with Michael Williams, professor of comparative religions at University of Washington in Seattle, and a man who knows a thing or two about the problems and troubles with the term Gnosticism. Michael, thank you very much for, for being on the podcast. Glad to be here, Earl. So, as we were just getting started talking about how you came to have doubts about the term Gnosticism, maybe you could just continue that, because that anecdote would probably be quite illuminating. Yeah, well, it, and it's fairly simple. I did my dissertation on Nagamati-type stuff uh, at Harvard, and back then, of course, I was using the term Gnostic, Gnosticism, as most everybody was, or a lot of people at least. And even in my early years of teaching here, I was still using the term. But what happened eventually is that I began to have this issue. It seemed like every time I talked about it or taught a class on it, students would ask me, well, what is Gnosticism? And so it was very difficult to try to, to carve it out. I kind of knew the text that, uh, I mean, I did know the text we were, that people would be talking about under that category, but explaining it to students, I began to sympathize with their position. And it sometimes wasn't just students, but you know, other people I would meet. And so that kind of uh, was the initiative to a, a long exercise in trying to sort out what's happened with this label, what's happened with this category, and Essentially, I, I came up, I mean, the, the first really formal expression of this was in the uh, book Rethinking Gnosticism, where essentially, at the end, I suggested that this category is probably something best left aside because it's simply too problematic. And what I tried to do in that book is to show specific ways, we can talk about that later, specific ways in which it's too problematic. Hmm. Well, you do two things, a negative uh, deconstructing the term or an, an analysis of the problems and also a, a positive project, which we should also talk about where you talk about, well, let's look at another way where we can talk about yeah. these movements in, in a more yeah. accurate way. So that's that's a very good thing. It's, it's easy to tear down any broad scale term in the history of culture, let's say, because they're always generalized. But then to offer something positive, I think, is keeps you honest. So Rethinking Gnosticism, an argument for dismantling a dubious category, 1996. A book, a very readable book, actually almost, I would say, written for a general readership, or at least accessible to a general readership. I'm not sure that I thought of it that way, Earl, at the time, but I suddenly discovered that apparently, I'm from colleagues here at, at the U uh, who aren't specialists in this, that I guess it was readable. Well, that's a good... Uh... <laughs> Discovery process on, on my part. Let's get into the subject matter of your book, but I mean, if you um, if the conversation takes us in other directions, by all means, follow those directions. But I was thinking we could talk about first of all the the history of the terms Gnostic, Gnosis, etc., going all the way back to antiquity. You know, do we actually have people in antiquity calling themselves Gnostics, all that kind of stuff, right up through to the modern era, where you have this kind of hypertrophy of Gnosticism, where everything can be called Gnostic in some context or another. And then maybe specifically look at scholarship and how it's been used in modern scholarship. So that's like the historical side of things. Yeah, yeah the term, they, there were people who called themselves 
referred to themselves as Gnosticoi. We know that most everybody agrees on that. The issue is what sense we make out of it. Yeah. Um, now, when you say there were people, we're talking about second century, third century CE? Say so, second century, uh, at least as early as the second century. The term, it's, it's long been noted, uh, is a term that originates, actually comes out of uh, Platonism comes out of Plato. Plato can use the term Gnosticos, but when he uses it, he's talking about a certain form of knowledge as opposed to more practical kinds of knowledge. and So, so the term is inherited, essentially, from Platonism. And then it comes to be applied, in my view, it actually is applied in the second century by the people who are being attacked as, quote, Gnostics, um, it's probably being used by them, not unlike Plato himself used it. Referring to, I've sometimes compared it to the terms we use in modern context for, uh, I'm an intellectual. Okay, yes, I'm, I'm uh, Jewish, yes, I'm uh, Muslim, yes, I'm Christian, but I'm an intellectual. Okay. And so, used in that kind of way. In other words, you... Because of the Platonic background, we know that Platonism influenced a lot of these sects that are usually grouped in that way. But it begins, usually people point to Irenaeus. I mean, it's it's used, um, as I say, in other circles, pre-Jesus. But uh, Irenaeus, uh, this bishop in what is now an area of what is now France. Lyon. Lyon. Wrote this massive uh, work, which in many ways one has to really start there in terms of the origin of uh, this kind of use. But Irenaeus was especially concerned about certain kinds of Christian groups that modern scholars have usually uh, referred to as Valentinian. I mean, because they're based on, they're they're derived from the the teachings, supposedly, of uh, this figure Valentinus, who's mid-2nd century. And so that was his main thing. But in the course of this, he had inherited some what um, modern scholar Jeff Smith uh, at University of Texas has called the blacklist. We don't know for certain whether the term Gnosticos was used in that blacklist, but it might have been. And when he uses it, he uses it in various ways. And his main agenda is to create, so Smith argues, and I think argues very significantly, that he wants to develop this notion that there's this whole group of people uh, and Valentinians fall right in there. And he wants to show that Valentinians just belong. He spends most of his time talking about them, but he wants to show that they belong in this long succession of false teachers going all the way back to Simon Magus, Simon the Magician, who appears in the book of Acts as a character, for example. Just to contextualize for those who have never heard of Irenaeus, this is our one of our first great, if not the first great, works of heresiology. So this is someone who's simultaneously constructing an orthodoxy, saying this is what the true Christianity is. Exactly. And at a time when that was very, very much in dispute, right? Before the Council of Nicaea, like, you know, this is there's a zillion different groups calling themselves Christians and counterclaims and all this sort of thing. He's saying, this is what it is. This is what it's not, emphatically. It's not what Valentina says. That's right. And he used, it's long been recognized uh, by various scholars that he uses the term Gnostics, 
rather widely because uh, he seems to use as, as a label for a lot of different groups. He, he, these groups that are in the, the blacklist that he inherited, a blacklist that he updates and adds his own stuff to. There was one group, well, he talks about them as a group, but one set of teachings toward the end of his first book of his, his work against these people, this you know, variety of groups of people, that he refers to them as Gnosticoi, but then he applies this term in terms like it seemingly in a, in a wider way to a number of other groups as well. The, the fact that he refers to one group and he refers to a school called Gnostike, it, it, uh, with a feminine ending, a school called Gnostike or a, a hieresis. Hieresis, gotcha. We, yeah, we get our term heresy from that. And uh, one notion is, this has been around for a while, is that this group was the one from which Valentinians inherited their teaching. In fact, that's what Irenaeus asserts. Now, we can come back to those later. The only reason I mention it is because in modern scholarship, as we speak, there are scholars who feel that the term Gnostics really should be only used of that one group, not the Valentinians, not uh, others, but just that one sect. More about that uh, later then. But he uses it in this wide-ranging uh, way. If you look at other heresiological actors in subsequent centuries, a lot of them, the major voices, there's a guy by the name of Epiphanius, uh, in the late 300s, a famous uh, anti-heresy writer, but others as well, clearly are dependent upon Irenaeus. They have some independent sources, but they're clearly dependent upon Irenaeus. So his influence is quite phenomenal. But if you look at the history of heresiology down through the Byzantine period, really into the, the Middle Ages, it's typically the case that you either have a lot of collectors of lists of heretics, and that list grows, as you might imagine, the more history, and a lot of people tend to fall in the Manichaeans, uh, for instance, the, this religious uh, movement uh, founded by uh, Mani in Persia, but then it spread all the way into the Western Mediterranean and as far east as, as China. They come up as a standard bad guy uh, in these lists. But if you look at those lists, some of them use the term Gnosticoi for really only a single sect. Epiphanius really uses it mostly that way. Some of them use it more broadly, gather in a few other people that supposedly call themselves Gnostics, whatever they meant by that term. And then in some of these lists, down through the Byzantine or medieval period and so forth, you don't find Gnostics included at all. What you are finding is the list of these individual supposed schools, you know, followers of Marcion, followers of Carpocrates, followers of Valentinus, and so on and so forth. And the list gets longer and longer. There's a kind of rediscovery of Irenaeus. I've actually written about this whole thing in an article published uh, three years ago or so uh, in the volume edited by April DeConnick called Secret Religion. It, it was actually a, a volume in a series, Religion, and then this volume that she's edited is Secret Religion. This is kind of uh, along your lines of esotericism and so forth. Yeah. There's a kind of rediscovery of Irenaeus in the late Middle Ages, 
and Reformation period. In fact, uh, you have uh, this uh, figure, the famous uh, Reformation period figure, Erasmus, who himself is is sort of pushing back on some Reformation movements. But Erasmus is a very learned scholar, and he produced new translation of Irenaeus. And that amounts to a kind of revival of the impact of Irenaeus. And so Irenaeus comes to be used as a kind of uh, blunt instrument for attacking your, your opponents across the street in the 16th, 17th century. So Luther is a Gnostic. Right. Uh, or Calvinists, the Huguenots are Gnostics. Uh, and then from the other side, popes are, are Gnostics. I mean, there's a, the first use that we know of in terms of surviving sources of this term. This was uh, pointed out in an article published many years ago by Bentley Layton of, of Yale, is this uh, Cambridge Platonist Henry Moore. And Moore, Layton pointed out that Moore had used this term in a book in 1669 that was uh, a kind of commentary on the seven churches in the book of Revelation, mm -hmm. Apocalypse of John, in the New Testament. And Moore used, basically Moore uses the term in an anti-Catholic way. You know, he sees Simon and others as the antecedents of, of the papacy. Actually, though, uh, Moore, a slight correction to Bentley, Moore actually used the term earlier a couple of times in some things he published in, like, it's only a few years, like 1664. But the important thing is I looked at the, these, because I hadn't, before writing that article, I hadn't really dug into this. And if you look at Moore's language, you get the impression that this term Gnosticism in his age say, in the, in the year 1664, actually maybe was current. And mm. so it, in my view, it's not absolutely certain that he invented the term. But that's just to talk about a period in which we first began to, to see the term used. Now, this brings us to a really interesting point yeah. that in at the beginning of your book, you have a, a great quote from the late Juan Culianu, where yeah, he just right. says, basically, in a nutshell, everything can be called Gnostic. Moore couldn't be a better illustration because Moore himself is busy with Clement and Oregon, of all people. And Clement is a Christian for whom the term Gnosis is actually central. It isn't yes. just some someone polemicizing against him. He actually is talking about the Gnostics within the church. So Moore himself is sort he, he of... Used more more than anybody else in that period. Yeah, yeah. So Moore himself is is as it were going back ad fontes to the roots of Christian Gnosticism in one way of understanding the term, and then inveighing right. against the Gnostics who are the Catholic Church. Right, right. That's exactly what he's doing. And and the matter of fact, if you then go after Moore through the Protestant Reformation, the you know the couple of centuries or so after that, it continues to be used as a polemical club to batter uh, opponents. You, you find it in Protestant documents, particularly. You find it uh, also in, uh, uh, even among Catholic uh, writers as well. And then you come to a period, well, the 18th century, where you begin to see, maybe even just a little early, you begin to see publications that begin to express a kind of almost sympathy toward, and this is a real turning point, a sympathy toward ancient Gnostics. 
I mean, this is in the period of, you know, the uh, the enlightened, the so-called enlightenment, and people are critical then of the way in which these people are characterized by ancient heresiologists. And I mention that because if you look at this uh, modern period, the term comes to be used often sympathetically because the Gnostics come to be viewed by by many modern uh, scholars, readers, and even a lot of uh, lay people as kind of the enlightened people before the time. So we moderns can sort of, you know, relate to them. Right. So they're like counterculture heroes of late antiquity. Exactly. Countercultural heroes. And used to even some of the latest, even some of the latest uh, publications, you'll still see this occasionally. In fact, uh, April DeConnick. yeah, April's own book. You find this exactly. You're 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 familiar with it. And then if you if you look at the uh, this this period, I mean, you go through a period in the so-called Romantic period, the period of Romanticism, which is a difficult one to. It's not my specialty, but I know it's a difficult thing to uh, define. So you began to hear more about gnosis as a fe- a special spirit or feeling. So the language of feeling, and this, I mentioned that because that will stay, um, you know, attitudes, what is their feeling, what is their, and then um, if you, uh, you know, continue to follow this, there's the period in the late 19th century, early 20th century, in which there's a lot of comparison, an attempt to explore the origins of certain kinds of motifs in so-called Gnostic literature, and the origins are sought in the East, Iran uh, and, and other places. The, the history of religion school, yeah. uh, Tubingen and others, uh, figures like Richard Reitzenstein or uh, Wilhelm Busset uh, and, and others. So here you have a kind of uh, a period of motif identification. And then following that, you uh, have to mention, obviously, this is leaving out a lot of important scholars, a lot, a lot of figures, but there's the, there's the work of the late, the brilliant philosopher Hans Jonas in the early uh, 20th century. And Jonas, to his credit, Jonas was essentially attempting, as I understand his agenda, essentially he was looking at all of this history of the use of the term and essentially saying, look at, you know, um, all of this motif searching, motif uh, identification and so forth, really doesn't get at the heart of what's going on. And so he he tried to identify the essential spirit, the geist Mm. behind uh, this. And so he wrote uh, a dissertation on this. And to make a long story short, his work is later, because he, he lived in more than one place, but he moved at one point, taught in New York uh, City at the New School, as I recall. And uh, in doing this, he also published a kind of distillation of some of his ideas in this popularized book in English called The Gnostic Religion. And so that book had an astounding, I mean, his, his work in general, there were classicists and others who were skeptical about Jonas's uh, approach early on. The Arthur Darby Nock, for example, wrote a famous critique of of uh, Jonas's work in German. But 
there's no question but what Jonas's book to the broad audience of English readers, especially, but one has to say elsewhere in the world, had this phenomenal impact in terms of shaping people's ideas about what this is. The problem with Jonas's work, and I, again, characterize him, I met him once, he's clearly a brilliant person, but he was not really a historian, and problem is he developed a kind of typological view. I mean, people had tried typologies before. He wasn't the first to do this. But he comes up with a kind of typology for what is the heart, the essence. This is his kind of language, the essence of Gnosis. And of course, it includes or is characterized by this kind of rebelliousness, the anti-cosmic is a term that was big uh, for Jonas. It's an anti-cosmic rejection of uh, life in this world, and that had all kinds of, of consequences in Jonas's view. You know, for example, he argued he, it wasn't original with him, but he played upon this notion that so-called Gnostics, uh, in terms of the way they lived, their ethical lives, tended to be either ascetics or libertines. You know, and this is what I call this kind of two-pronged ethic. And that had legs. That was a long, I mean, still today, you'll occasionally find it. But the problem is that a lot of the things that uh, Jonas is, was asserting tend turn out to be very problematic kinds of ways of understanding these real people. And we can elaborate on that if you want, hmm. because that's something actually I've uh, even since rethinking Gnosticism. I had a chapter in rethinking Gnosticism where I approached this notion of anti-cosmic world rejection, but I've elaborated on this in other ways. In fact, I've discovered things that I really wasn't thinking about when I was reading that book. I think the people have been completely misunderstood in the, on that on this account. Okay, well, let's, let's come back to anti-cosmism when we get to the, the texts themselves, maybe. Yeah. I don't want to de- derail this incredible history of the scholarship okay. of Gnosticism, this thing that may or may not exist at all. Um, where do we go from, well, I suppose the discovery of the Nag Hammadi trove is the next big milestone. Oh, yes. It was a, it was a major, a major uh, turning point. Among other things, since I was just talking about it a moment ago, among other things, people noticed that while there seems to be some evidence for ascetic-like themes in several of these texts, there's an amazing absence at least scarcity and probably uh, absence of the kind of libertinistic sorts of things that Epiphanius and others have always accused uh, these Gnostics of doing. Right. So that, that changed things. You know, it, it also, people noticed, um, and that, uh, this was discussed uh, by the late Morton Smith at a conference on the rediscovery of Gnosticism that was eventually a two volume, published in two volumes at Yale. And uh, Morton Smith uh, had a famous paper there, and Smith was pointing out the fact that in the Nagamati text, the term Gnostic doesn't appear. The equivalent to the Greek term Gnosis, you can find examples of that, and sometimes even the term itself. But as a self-label, you don't have people writing these texts, referring to themselves this way. I'm just going to take one moment to back up, because it occurs to me that some people may not be 
au fait with the Nag Hammadi texts, though many of our listeners will be. So this is a trove of texts in the Coptic language, which is a late form of Egyptian written in a, well, in an alphabet based on Greek, but different from Greek. And many of these texts we know are translations of earlier texts that were in Greek. So this is, a lot of this is Greek material, and it's a whole vast and bewildering array of texts. Many of them, just to keep us guessing, are fragmentary. Many of them, we have multiple versions of the same text, like the Apocryphon of John, etc. Oh. Uh, we find weird stuff like a bit of Plato's Republic and a, and a Hermetic text and lots of other interesting bits. So this was found, and then suddenly we had, for the first time, the genuine, real Gnostic texts that everyone had been speculating about based on these heresiological accounts of what they believed for so long. So it's like suddenly people are going back to Irenaeus and going, ah, we have the text that you're attacking here. We're going to read it now for the first time in, not in the original, but in a translation. So that's yeah, the all, Nag Hammadi. Right. We did have a small handful of Coptic texts. And for that matter, we actually had here and there a primary text or two. I mean, uh, for all of his problems, uh, Epiphanius, this guy is really, I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's a very biased and, and sometimes vicious critic. But occasionally uh, there are instances where he cites early and actually quotes apparently, writings from the people we're talking about. So you have, you have that, but prior to the Nagamati texts, we had uh, something called the Askew Codex. We had uh, text um, contained something called the Faith Wisdom or, or Pistis Sophia. We had a small handful, and as you mentioned, the Secret Book of John or the Apocryphon of John, of which we have three copies at Nagamati. It seems to have been an important text and all of them beginning the book, each book, uh, beginning a codex. But we did have another copy of the Secret Book of John that was actually discovered right at the end of the 19th century, but for a variety of reasons ended up not being published, really, until the 50s. And the so-called Berlin Codex, 8502. And because of the two world wars, among other things, there were a lot of disasters and it didn't get published. So we had those, but the Nagamati text certainly changed things immensely. Okay. Well, since you've done such an amazing job of running down, well, the history of first heresiology and then scholarship about Gnosticism, before we move on to the problems and solutions to this puzzle, could you quickly tell us about, I mean, this is almost impossible, but developments in scholarship, major trends in scholarship since Nag Hammadi. With respect to this topic, you yeah. mean? Yeah. Like, what are people saying about Gnosticism in the 70s, 80s, 90s now? Right. Well, of course, Jonas's influence continued. And there were scholars who, um, I'm, I'm my good friend, but intellectual opponent on this particular topic, at least on some, not on every issue, uh, Berger Pearson, uh, uh, professor emeritus from Santa Barbara, U UC Santa Barbara, wrote a book, for example, basically he argues for Gnosticism as a religion, which took its shape, he talks about in the course of this, it's intended as kind of a textbook, uh, he talks about uh, how this applies to various titles in the Nagamati collection, but then he includes Manichaeism in this trajectory, and all the way down to the modern period, some people refer to as the last Gnostics, the Mandeans, 
Wow. The Mandeans are uh, essentially an ethnic group with their own special kinds of, of rituals. They're a beleaguered minority, a persecuted minority, we should say, where their original homeland was in places like Iraq and Iran. A lot of them these days, so far as I know, uh, live in diaspora in major cities around the world. So it's a living religion heavily focused around the importance of Mandean priests who perform ritual baptisms uh, for, and these, these would not be a single baptism, but actually uh, repeated purifications. I mention that because the Mandeans, they're usually categorized in this because the, their literature is also complex, but it does contain here and there technical terms that scholars have tried to link to the earlier texts like Nagamadi. There is a sort of esotericism about the Mandean religious tradition. And some people have argued that the term Mandean actually comes from a, a word that would mean the knowers. That's actually been questioned by many other scholars of Mandeism, because another argument could be that the term is related to their use of a certain kind of physical structure, at least back in their early period in Iran, that uh, involved a kind of special ritual hut and a a pool for baptism that was called a manda. So some people have argued that. But in any case, they're rather different from anything, if you, if you talk about how they go about their lives, than anything we see in, in uh, a lot of the earlier periods. But Pearson, so he wanted to see this really as a religion. And he, understand, he understood, still understands, the job of the historian of religion to track uh, a religion like this. And there are a lot of people who follow that route. There are today people, I mentioned Bentley Layton, and one of his uh, students, uh, David Brockie, who wrote a book a few years ago called The Gnostics. And their position is that, and this is what I was alluding to earlier, their position is that the term the Gnostics should only be used of one specific sect. And they argue that that sect is described, their teachings of that sect is described by Irenaeus in uh, a chapter 29. I don't want to get into too many details. Chapter yeah. 29 in book one. And then they feel that, the, because we know that the teachings in that section that Irenaeus summarizes match in many respects a portion, at least, of what we call the secret, well, it calls itself the secret book of John. And so Leighton and Brocky and presumably others also link some of those Nagamati texts and uh, with this special school called Gnostic, as they as they reconstruct the matter. And I suppose, I'll, I'll add this, and I've said this more than once in public context, and or, I suppose that if that's the only way the term Gnostics had ever been used in the history of scholarship, I'd have an argument against it to, to some extent, but I, w I wouldn't have written Rethinking Gnosticism. Right. It would, it would have been a different, different world, because they would be saying, okay, we're only going to use the term to describe this sect and its teachings. And, uh, okay, that's you're being very clear about what you're talking about, one historical sect. There are still people, to some extent, uh, Berger Pearson is in this category, but many others, April DeConnick and others, who follow a kind of typological construction. There's a, 
very well-known and, and learned uh, historian of ancient Christianity, Christoph Marxisch, who wrote a little book. I think he planned a larger study, but I think he, he decided against it because he's never published anything else. It was, it's just called Gnosis. And it still has some usefulness, but Marxist takes a kind of typological approach. So those are examples. So you've got single sect, you've got a broad typological category, and then when you're doing that, you have to figure out, well, what do I put in my typology? Yeah. And, and then you have people like me, like uh, my friend, uh, Professor Karen King at, at Harvard, we've talked about this a lot over the decades, and uh, her book, which is a very fine book called What is Gnosticism, is in many ways a kind of uh, compliment. It came after my book, but it sort of it agrees with a lot of the things that I was talking about, but it all, she also does more on the history of scholarship in that book, and it's a useful book. So there are people who suggest that maybe it would just be simpler not to use this term because the term let's face it is a heritage of heresiology and that's basically her argument that the term got off to a bad start right away because it was a term to corral a bunch of my opponents into a group or at least some of my opponents and so it had this uh, this history of being a polemical axe being used against people. Which is never a promising start for a neutral scholarly heuristic term, right? This is this, one of the major problems with the term magic as well, used in the history of magic. Exactly. exactly. You know, magic, and we get it from the Romans, and for the Romans it means illegal ritual, you know? Right. <laughs> Which is not what we mean by it, but we're always no. kind of invoking that unintentionally when we, when we use it. That's right. Well... Thank you very much for that incredibly rich and comprehensive summary. It's comprehensive in the scholarly tradition. Once we get to the 20th century, maybe it's worth mentioning what is is maybe obvious, but maybe worth mentioning, that the term Gnostic spirals out into popular oh. culture in every direction, and you get Jungian Gnosticism, you get the Eranos people Blake, talking about Gnosticism. Uh, I mean, you know, you know they, William Blake and all sorts of things. I mean, Kulianu... Jan Kulianu tracked that very well, and <laughs> it's it's really a problem. He tried his own approach to this in the, in his book uh, that was translated into English as the Tree of Gnosis, and he felt that he was kind of avoiding when he was writing that book some of the the, the previous. Uh, I I found it when it first came out. I found it a very promising kind of approach. But on the other hand, the problem was that he kind of fell into the same, some of the same uh, pitfalls, in my view, in terms of some generalizations about what's going on in some of these texts. Okay. But it was another, it, it was it was a different uh, it was a different attempt. You're talking about the the problems with Gnostic, with the term, and some of them have just emerged already. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's safe to say that. Well, one problem is that it starts out as a polemical term, so it has this baggage from orthodox Christian polemics against the perceived other. Another problem is that the shadow of Jonas is projecting this kind of very... Well, when something becomes a religion, becomes a religion, we immediately start to think of it as something perhaps along the lines of 
Orthodox Christianity, something that has a creed, something that has a, a central unifying set of beliefs, set of rituals, whatever, everyone who belongs to it recognizably of that religion, right? The evidence of from the texts might point us in another direction on that as well. So maybe you can expand on other kind of major problems with the term, well, the linked terms Gnosticism, Gnosis, Gnostic, as scholarly heuristics. Well, the, uh, the most fundamental way of describing it is that while you do have clusters of texts, let's say within Nagamadi, and then related traditions in heresiologists that sometimes we can, you know, link, we, we can see that they were talking about something rather similar to what we find in this, uh, this or that Nagamadi text. When you look at these, they are extremely diverse in many respects, but there are some clusters that do trade in a certain kind of jargon. There's a group, for instance, it's the same group that Leighton and Brocky would refer to as the Gnostics, but other scholars use the term the Sethians for that. John Turner, yep. for instance, who's written a good deal about this, is very, you know, an excellent scholar, written a lot about the Sethians. And then other scholars say, well, you, you can find a number of texts that share a certain jargon that seems to, to characterize so-called Valentinian texts. So there are things, even those categories have been questioned these days, so-called Sethians and, and Valentinian texts. People have argued that those are too confining, that in fact there's more diversity in each of those categories than is usually admitted. But nevertheless, you can track a kind of you know common jargon or sets of jargon that something's going on i've always thought okay. it may not it may not be a tight sect although in some cases i think I, I have no reason to believe that there aren't some sectarian groups behind these but in some cases it may be simply freelancing speculators we might say okay now so, can i put this to you um as a non-specialist in this subject, if I look at early Christianity, the early, let's say, second century writers who are, who are, in retrospect, all Christians, who identify themselves as Christians, this also is an enormous range. So someone like Origen is yeah. wacky and out of step with, in retrospect, everything else that's happening in Christianity. Then you have a Tertullian who's like, you know, just miles away from what Origen's doing. You have, a few centuries later, Augustine, again, completely different. But no one has any trouble talking about all of these as Christians, right? Right. So in the same way, one could approach this thing, Valentinianism, and say, okay, it makes sense to talk about it as Valentinian in the same way as it makes sense to talk about this larger group as Christian. Yeah. Does that at make least sense? You, yeah, well, at least you have a, a Valentinus. Yeah. Or in the, in the case of uh, so-called Marcionites, at least you had a Marcion, we know, and so that there's something connects. When you talk about the so-called Gnostics, we don't have a Mr. You know, Fred Gnosis, the right. uh, leader of this. It doesn't, it, it's something else going on. And by the way, on the term Christian, there are scholars today, and they have an interesting argument that really we shouldn't use the term Christian until you get into the second century. Yeah, Jesus movement. Um, yeah, they're, they're beginning to use it of themselves. And, and that's one difference. They, for all of the variety, origin... Uh, Tertullian and others that uh, you could rightly mention, for all of their genuine variety, 
there's at least a Jesus. Right. Or Christ, if they're using that term. And they call them, they, they will use the self-designation so often of Christians. They, you know, so they seem to be self-identifying. And we can track communities. We know that there were sometimes conflicts between these communities. But a lot of the texts that people call Gnostic, I just referred to as Christian texts. Christian demiurgical texts, as I've uh, referred to them. They, they also talk about the Christ, a lot of these texts, right? Yeah, they do. Not all of them, but uh, so many of them. And there are scholars today who are, you know, there, there was this whole argument. Uh, Jonas was a little hesitant about it, but, but scholars like Berger Pearson, I keep mentioning him just to keep it uh, simple here, but uh, several scholars would share his position, who argue that this was what we find in Nagamati texts is really began the secret book of John, the Apocryphon of John has a pre-Christian existence, some of the myth, in Judaism, that it begins as a sort of marginalized Judaism on the margin. Uh, Kurt Rudolph, the German scholar Kurt Rudolph, also took that position. Is this the pre-Christian Gnostic myth that one reads about? Yeah, and but more specifically that it originated in Jewish circles. Okay, so it's not from the Near East, for example, which was an early like Religionsgeschichte Schule yeah. idea. Some it might uh, have some influence, but there, so the argument goes. Hmm. But the point is that it began really in Jewish circles, and then, like so much out of Judaism, it was inherited, uh, taken over by by certain forms of, of Christianity. But there are other scholars today, I think Karen King is one of them, but there are many of them who argue that, no, you really, you, these myths really aren't found until you get into the second century. And so it's a post-Christian, or not post-Christian, but, but it, it, it corresponds, a Christian, the, the Jesus movement's Christianity was the catalyst that brought some of these things into certain circles of Jesus movement kinds of people. And so you don't have... You know, you don't have this pre-Christian Jewish Gnosticism. That's an old debate right. about there was a pre-Christian Gnosticism or not. But that um, debate only even is intelligible if there's such a thing as Gnosticism in the first place. Well, actually, you wouldn't have to say that. You could just say, okay, if you look at myth in the Apocryphon of John, uh, were there Jewish circles that used those same kinds of creation myths? Gotcha. That's a legitimate debate. It's just that uh, can't find it. Hans Jonas, of course, re- rejected it because he couldn't. He found in the Gnostic religion an example of theological anti anti-Semitism, Basically, he used other terms about, it, but it's a, a a really rabid form of anti-Semitism because of he argued for the reversal of values. This is a kind of a trope that you'll find. A lot of modern scholars still using that Gnostics went in and they just reversed the value. What was good in in Hebrew Bible is now becomes bad. What right. is bad now becomes good. That's not accurate. In okay. fact, I, that's something I did argue uh, uh, in rethinking Gnosticism. A lot of scholars, I think, recognize that. So it's not new because there are some things they don't. All values aren't reversed in the Nagamati text. Right. Uh, it's very selective. Now, let's talk about 
Well, I would say let's talk about the texts, but that's a huge, huge task. Even just to talk about the Apocryphon of John, we could spend a whole hour. It's an incredibly complex myth with a lot going on, a lot of metaphysics going on, a lot of uh, very weird stuff happening. Um, so what we're going to do is devote a number of episodes to each specific text, important texts, maybe talk about Sethianism, maybe talk about Valentinianism, Basilides, a favorite author of mine. Right. They'll all get a look in. So what I'd like to do is exploit your particular expertise in the context we're talking about. First, I'd like to ask you to do something impossible and then something possible. So that the impossible part is to say before you offer your solution for how we're supposed to talk about these texts, right? Because we're sort of dancing around them. We've got rid of Gnosticism now, but now what is this that we're talking about? Can you just give us a kind of characterization of the texts in question? Nag Hammadi and related. I take it that we're leaving aside Manichaeanism, which is has many similarities, but is not really part of this uh, cultural sphere. Um, probably leaving aside the Hermetica as well. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, if you want to bring in the Hermetica, by all means. But what, what do we find in these texts, if you can summarize it? This is the impossible part. Well, what I would argue is that, um, and, I, and I'm not original with this, the uh, uh, French uh, scholar Simon Petremont, in, in a book, there's an English translation of it several years ago called The Separate God. Mm -hmm. And uh, she... Somewhere in, in the early part of that book, she commented that really one of the consistent things in a lot of these sorts of sources is the notion of creation by one or more lesser beings, okay. uh, entities lesser than the high God, the true, the true whatever term is used of that yeah. highest uh, transcendent entity. And that is something that is found... And a lot of the taste, it's something that does tie together, although they do different things with it, but it's something that does tie them together. It is true, secondly, that a lot of the texts have some room for the notion of enlightenment or gnosis. And so this would be an argument, you know, I've been, my, the Rethinking Gnosticism book was criticized by some that I didn't really talk about that as much, but it was rather intentional on my part. Because if you look at early Christianity and just that, not to mention some other things, but early ancient Christianity in general, the notion of salvation requiring new knowledge, enlightenment, is everywhere. So the language of Gnosis, I mean, we mentioned Clement of Alexandria, for example, but it's not just limited to, to Clement. The, the value, the premium placed upon accepting the revelation. And in the end, we're talking about revelation, right. the revelation of how things really are. And that's what the secret book of John is talking about. But these texts do share a, a lot of that. So far, we have demiurgic creation, to call it that, following and, the model of the demiurge in Plato's Timaeus, and salvific knowledge of some kind or another. Yeah. Now, it's it's usually been argued that uh, Marcion, I mean, Jonas treated Marcion in his Gnostic religion book, for instance. But many scholars have argued that not, Marcion can't be characterized as a Gnostic because Marcion is basically a Paulinist of a certain brand, admirer of the Apostle Paul and Paul's writings. He has his own take on it. Um, and uh, it's all about faith. 
or trust. And so that simple contrast has often been raised. One of the problems with it is that the language of faith does come up in some of these Nakamadi texts, as a matter of fact. Mm. Uh, you know, it's not completely uh, absent there. Uh, but, you know, when you get beyond the notion of a demiurgical creation, that it's creation by lesser beings, there are a lot of things that begin to fall apart in terms because not all of these texts are ascetic, for instance, that's sometimes been raised. They don't don't all have the same kind of uh, uh, sexual uh, ethic. Not all of them have. I mean, what would be the other kinds of things? They they don't have this uh, anti world world rejection posture. I would argue. I think they've been misunderstood in that regard. There are a number of things. It's hard to find. Unless you're looking at specific groups, as I said, like the so-called Sethian texts, whatever you want to call it, where you do find, you know, technical jargon, names of, of uh, you know, uh, demiurgical fi- uh, villains uh, and, and so forth, you do find some kind of common jargon shared, but that's within that one group. And, uh, you know, the same thing. But, you know, when you get beyond that, it's hard to know exactly what you want to count. People have said, okay, it's another generalization that's often been made is that so-called Gnostics are all about salvation by having a special kind of spark in you, a special kind of spirit. Mm. And it's almost, uh, you know, you're almost saved by nature. Irenaeus tries to make that argument. But the more we look at these texts, yes, they might have, you know, humans have something of the divine within them. More than one text talks about that. But it's a version of the Jewish and Christian notion of created in the image of God or or possessing the spirit of God, Hmm. the gift of, of the spirit. And certainly, as I read these texts, it's not a matter of automatic salvation. That is just because I have this that I'm kind of automatically saved. And a lot of scholars have recognized that. I mean, that's you don't see that as much of a generalization anymore. You still see it occasionally. Because if you read some of these texts, there are also ethical agendas, things to be done, and not just sexual ethics, values about community, you know, the criticism of of various forms of immorality that that the archons, these these demiurgical figures, want you to be. They want you to be immoral. They they implant this in you. But there are way, there are things to be done. If you don't do it, you run a danger. So uh, of of not being saved. My point is that if you read a number of these texts, there are things to be done. Rituals, for example. I mean, John Turner has written about this occasionally. There are rituals that are oftentimes apparently rather central to the salvation process. So that goes against the older notion that it's just a matter of salvation by gnosis. No, there's something to be done. Right. So they're not, they're not um, ancient Calvinists who believe in, them, in the elect. Right. That's right. They've been read that way. Well, the language of election, I mean, Paul uses it. Other, mm. A lot of people can use it. But Paul also has what we call paranetic or, or exhorta- moral exhortation yeah. in, in all of his writings. So, yeah. Great. That's so it. I think we should move on to the solution. 
Okay. We have. Um, so, is it safe to say that your solution to the many pronged problem with terminology here is to first of all to approach these not on the assumption that they're one religion, right? Far from it. A number of new religious movements arising in early late antiquity. Right. Yeah. That's correct. I, for, for me. It's a real problem to just talk about the Gnostic religion, particularly if you reconstruct the so-called Gnostic religion by a list of you know these typological attributes, because they so often just you know things don't quite fit. You could go in the opposite direction as well. So you could say demiurgic creation. Oh, we find that in Philo of Alexandria as well. Exactly. You could exactly. find uh, anti-cosmic pessimism, so-called, and say, oh, well, you know, Plotinus, there's a lot of that in Plotinus, and so, etc. You can find all these things in things that no one wants to consider Gnostic as right. well. And, but I don't view that as a, as a critique of the approach I'm taking. Right, no. That's absolutely right. Plato was a demiurgist. Yeah. And, and Middle Platonists, I mean, in, in Platonism, uh, what I've called uh, demiurgy, you know, it uh, appears several places. I mean, obviously, Plato in the Timaeus uses the term demiorgos, and yeah. so that yeah. becomes uh, the uh, state platform for its later development. But uh, people have often answered, as far as that argument is concerned, yeah, but Plato uh, accepted the world as the, the, the cosmos. Plato wasn't anti-cosmic. Right. I know what's being said, and that's okay, my point was this, that I'm not, I think I was often read as trying to replace the word Gnostic with the term, and I, I probably unwisely use this longer term, biblical demiurgic traditions, and people have found that awkward. Today, I simply just talk about Christian demiurgists, okay. uh, or if you find them, if you, if you can go and find them, Jewish demiurgists, or you know, Platonist, Demiurgists, and, and so forth. I'm trying to understand what these people are doing. And so it's not a matter of trying to just replace Gnosticism. I argued that the term Gnostic and Gnosticism had become so freighted with all of these stereotypes that you're constantly having to fight back at those stereotypes or to qualify your own use of the term Gnostic and so forth. I just said it might be simplest to drop the term and just talk about texts. And you can group some of these texts but in terms of other kinds of common things they share, but you can you know, ask the question, okay, if I've got demiurgical texts laid out on my table, laid out on my desks, what do they actually do? And the answer is not the same for every, every text. Right. It's sort of the same for some of them, um, in, in groups in other words, but uh, the answer is not always the same. So you're not trapped into having to stick with some stereotype that you're constantly facing exceptions to. Right. But, uh, okay, well, it's sort of Gnostic, but uh, it's missing this, but I still want to call it Gnostic. Well, it might be just easier to do something, you have some other kind of term. Okay. A lot of, I mean, uh, Karen is uh, an example, Elaine Pagels, for example, um, in, in uh, the last several years has urged much more focus just on texts, individual texts or small groups of texts you know, seeing, and not cutting them off from comparison with even non-demiurgical texts in terms of certain kinds of things. Okay, and so what do you think, 
What does that get us? Well, yeah, what does that get us? That's a good question. In my view, it gets us closer to actually understanding what's going on in any given text. Right. Because we, we don't come to the text, okay, it's an Agamati text, and therefore it's Gnostic, or everybody says it's Gnostic, and therefore I've got to find these things in it. That's going backwards. So we're not mangling the evidence and mushing it into our Procrustean bed of Gnosticism. You go to the text and you look at what's in it. You know, for example, on the anti-cosmic, uh, you know, world rejection business. And I've, I've been writing about this. Actually, I have some uh, published article or two in, in volumes here and there that talk about the fact that uh, if you look at texts like the Secret Book of John or several other texts I could mention, what I'm struck by is how little these texts say about the physical creation itself. What they talk about is the situation of the human being and the human being uh, being abused by, you know, Yaldabaoth and his henchmen, these these uh, demiurgical uh, beings, archons. They talk about that. They talk about moral evil. They talk about moral evil, but hardly anything about what we might call natural evil or natural, you know, earthquakes. You know, why are there constant earthquakes? Why are there uh, volcanoes? Why are there human-eating beasts? Uh, so here and there you find reference, but a surprising absence hmm. of any discussion of that. They want to get, when, when whoever the authors are, and there's more than one version of the Secret Book of John, when they get to talking about the creation itself, in fact, in so many of these texts, the creation is by divine design, the creation imitates, it's not perfect, but Plato said that this world is not perfect. Yeah. It imitates the transcendent realm. And the you know passages in the secret book of John say that explicitly. You know, in fact, in one version it elaborates that Yaldabaoth didn't really know what he was doing when he created the world. He didn't know where his ideas were coming from, but they had been in they had been inserted in him, so to yeah. speak. Yeah, he was un unwittingly following the plan of the of the transcendent spirit, even though he didn't mean to. That's right. And we have other texts that do the same thing. There's a writing known as the Trimorphic Protonoia. And in the Trimorphic Protonoia, in some ways, it's one of the most pantheistic texts. It's not the most pantheistic text I guess I've ever seen, but it's it's very... Because what it says is that the speaker in the text is the revealer, a female figure, protonoia, presumably. And what she says is that I have been, they think that they were doing this on their own, creating the world. But no, I was there doing it. I was in, I was in this, I was in that. Basically, she gives the impression she was involved in most everything that goes on. Not that the moral evil is approved of, certainly. Right. But... The divine presence is there. The, the language about providence is very heavy in the secret book of John, but it's heavy in some other places as well, in some so-called Valentinian texts. So that's what's struck me, that are these kinds of texts, the sorts of texts that would have been read, as I've sometimes said, only by the clinically depressed. Only the clinically depressed could John. I doubt it. And as a matter of fact, in the secret book of John, there's this passage where 
different types of responses are described. There are the ideal people who basically, from square one, are just devoted to the revealed truth, uh, both in terms of their behavior, but certainly in terms of, of morality. Then the secret book of John says, this is in a dialogue between John and Christ. And then Christ says, there are those people who don't get it right away. It takes a while. They're more like me. They're slow learners, I guess. But then finally, finally they get it. And then you have people who never get it in one lifetime, but they're reincarnated and eventually, in other words, and this has been recognized by others as well, if you look at that list, the secret book of John almost says that virtually everybody will be saved. The only people who are absolutely going to suffer eventual damnation are people who once received this revelation. They've read the secret book of John, maybe joined it, but then they turn away. This is the classic kind of motif that you find. The worst thing you could do is know the truth, be involved in it. You find something like this in the letter, the so-called letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. The worst thing you could do is being once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, as uh, Hebrews puts it, and then fall away. It's better than you've never been born to, to do that. That's the worst possible position. Michael Williams, thank you so much for an incredibly enlightening um, survey of the treacherous terrain of Gnostic studies. And I'd like to ask you one more question before I let you go. In the situation we are in, in our podcast, um, there's something analogous with the history of magic. So in very early in the podcast, I, I had an episode devoted to methodologies for approaching magic, in which I basically said, okay, this term magic is vitiated to the core. It's useless. Loads of scholars have, you know, sort of sworn off it. And then I finished up by saying, but uh, we're going to do a lot of talking about magic in this podcast because you kind of have to. In the interviews that follow this with various specialists, the term Gnosticism and Gnostics and Gnosis are going to pop up all the time. How do we deal with that? Do we just sort of, uh, I, I suppose, take it on a case-by-case -case basis and um, try to get people to define it as a term of art in a specific context to just say yeah, what they mean? Yeah, if I were you, I'd ask them what they mean by that. And you'll find probably some of them falling into you know, some of the, the, the sorts of approaches that I've mentioned as other options um, that are certainly current today. I'm interested in the extent to which any given approach actually takes me in an adequate way into what a text is really saying. And it's not simply an approach in which the text is bent out of shape because I'm bringing to it, you know, what, what's supposed to be a Gnostic text. I just think you can talk about a lot of these texts without having to use the term Gnostic. I try to do that. So there are scholars who disagree with me about the use of the category. And John Turner is a good, I mean, Pearson, a lot of the people I've mentioned, but do, have made uh, excellent contributions in one way or another to the analysis of, of text. And I've learned from them. I've learned from all of them. Well, Michael Williams, thanks again for sharing your views. It's been a, it's been a delight and uh, stay esoteric. Yeah, okay, good to meet you. All right.